will take up your bed and walk, was the sentence that was uttered by Jesus of Nazareth as he was speaking directly to a paralytic. This phrase was so striking, take up your bed and walk, in part because of its subtlety, but also because of its power and its powerful effect. In an instant, just honestly, a paralytic was told by Jesus to get up and walk. And it was done by the exercise of Jesus's creational power. The power that would heal this man, the power that would raise this man, and it was all done without an ounce of Jesus's infinite power being drained from him. But a few sentences earlier than this phrase we see in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, where Jesus would say to the same man a sentence that was equal in power, a sentence that was equal in its command, and a phrase that was equal in its promising of something more was going to be delivered. But it's even more striking, more striking than when Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. Jesus said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This pronouncement to the paralytic meant that Jesus's not only power was being displayed, not only was he doing something that was Uh, It was going to make other people nervous around him. But what he was doing was that he was foretelling. And the only way that this would be able to be done was that it would actually cost Jesus his own life. He would have to die now a substitutionary death for this man's sins to be forgiven. A horrendous death would come on him by the way of the cross for very sinful people. Darkness, it's been said, would would soon overcome Jesus' life. The Apostle Paul would later comment on Jesus' death in his own work, and he captures Jesus' death, I think, perfectly with only 15 Greek words. He says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless in his life. He knew no sin. What that means was there was nothing about him that was wrong. There was nothing about him or in him or from him towards anything else that was even a a little bit sinful. He knew no sin, but in his kindness and in his grace and his mercy, the person who knew no sin actually became sin for us, it says. For sinful people, Jesus became sin in order to stand where believers should stand. What Jesus did on the cross, what you and your family members, or maybe even you by yourself, should have been meditating on all this week, what Jesus did on the cross was truly the most difficult and the most monumental act in all of history. I mean, you think of what's been done in in all of history, the most monumental task, the most overcoming of anything, And Jesus's was the most difficult and the most monumental. And this is why it's so powerful and so encouraging that when the Bible or when people around you tell you that you should should turn to Jesus, it's so you can have the confidence that, that we have because of the act that he gave. Son, your sins are forgiven. Can be the most powerful and the most wonderful words 
ever said about you. The offer of new life is given out to anyone. But the responsibility of us calling out to the Lord is is truly on us. But the reward, you think of the reward that comes along with someone who heals a paralytic, is also the offer that, that no one else can give. Son, your sins are forgiven. Our text today is from Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49, where the words from Luke record the final acts and expressions of Jesus on the cross. Now, when I was thinking through this text, even today for like the first 20 minutes of sermon preparation, I was, I was just trying to understand how could I, how could I go over all of this text where, where every sentence, every verse of this passage could be dissected and preached for hours and hours and hours. Well, maybe fortunately for all of us, my sermon won't be for hours and hours and hours, but what I want to do quickly is to to walk through the text and then isolate one of these verses and really hover around again and again and try try to glean bit by bit of the sweetness of one of these verses. And in many ways, this helps me know what I'll preach next year at Get Friday, another verse from this passage. And after we've exhausted this passage, then we can move on to another great passage as we turn our attention to the Lord's death during Good Friday. But first, I want to bring your attention to verse 44 of Luke 23, where it says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. This means that this happened between the hours of noon and 3 p.m. This is what is meant there by the sixth hour of the day being noon and going towards 3 p.m., The darkness that Luke would write about often makes many people curious because we might quickly think, oh, that's surely an eclipse that would happen. But the way that the sun and the moon would have normally arranged, not normally, always would have arranged themselves on when Christians observe Easter weekend, it would be physically impossible for an eclipse to happen. Some people think that there was a giant windstorm that, that took up uh, the, the awareness of people to where they couldn't see anything that was happening. I, I think that one of the things that we can just be clear on is that this passage is describing something that is truly miraculous, where darkness falls over the land. And not just cloudiness, but darkness. And also, this is not only supernatural, but it's an eschatological event as well, where something that I think was told about in the past of what would happen in triumphant times of the Lord's work are are now being partially fulfilled in this passage. But not only is it supernatural or eschatologically natural, or not only is it supernatural and an eschatological event, but it's also a symbolic event. By eschatological, I mean judgment, glimmering through darkness, has been told to us in passages from Joel and Amos and Zephaniah. If you think about Joel chapter 2, verse 10, it says, The earth quakes before them, and the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Or Amos chapter 8, verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth and broad daylight. Not only is this eschatological, though, it's symbolic of God having turned off the light's glow of his own glory. This miracle, this supernatural event, 
is awe-inspiring to us. But not only does the text show us something supernatural, but it shows us something practical as we now can consider the Father in a, in a new or in a fresh way. Look also at the text where, where it says something so captivating. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple, though, was, you might think, well, curtains tear all the time. You know, a cat jumps on a curtain and it tears down from the rods, or a kid pulls on it and it's ripped a little bit. But these, these curtains, you, you physically could not tear them apart. They were thick on their own, but then they were layered. And some people think it was like 13 layers of this fabric that was folded on top of themselves. It would have been next to impossible for anyone to tear on their own. So it's obvious, I think, to Christians that God was the one who tore the curtain inside the temple. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he he goes on to equate the tearing of the temple or the tearing of the curtain in the temple as coinciding with an an earthquake that would have happened in Jerusalem at this moment, where the inner sanctum or the Holy of Holies was opened up for all to see. And this would have been something to see because the function of the curtain was to keep people out of the Holy of Holies. But here, on our God's Good Friday, the atonement, true atonement, was made by the person and the active work of Jesus himself. It's now no longer does a curtain keep us from the Holy of Holies, but we have access to the Father through the person of Jesus The veil that once was a barrier between God's inner sanctuary and a polluted human race has been, well, it's been torn. And in its place, condemned, Jesus stood. Look also in verse 46 where Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, the other Gospels record some of the most well-known words of Jesus from the cross, particularly his excruciating cry of agony of soul and heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he was truly forsaken for a time, but then he followed that anguished exclamation with a statement, it is finished. Presumably, the the forsakenness was momentary, and when it was over, the, the atonement had been made. It was finished, and God gazed once more at His Son, and Jesus could then say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The Father had just put the Son through hell, had just poured out the wrath of absolute righteousness upon Him, the wrath that would actually kill him. Yet the son in saying, Father, I put my spirit into your hands, vindicated not only the the holiness of God, but also the, the sinlessness of the Son of God. And there we see in the text also in verse 47, an observation from the distance, the centurion The man who would have been in charge of soldiers who would have carried out the actual crucifixion, this centurion would have seen what had happened and praised, well, not the work of his helpers. He wouldn't have praised the authority of 
Rome. He wouldn't have praised the, the people who would have wanted Jesus to be crucified on the cross. Look what it says there. Seeing what had happened, he praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Throughout the narrative of chapter 23, Jesus is vindicated by official witnesses. We see often four times where Pilate stated, I find no guilt in the man. And now the captain of the guard who would carry out the crucifixion of Jesus declares his innocence. And the people in our text, maybe even further out in the rings of observation, they saw what had happened too. But they didn't declare Jesus' righteousness. It's almost like they were looking internally in anguish. They beat their breasts, it said, and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I'd love to know what they were thinking. Even though I know it's clear in the text that when they're beating their chest, it's not in pride but in anguish, I would, I would love to know what they were thinking. Did they lose hope? Did they have a forethought of what would happen? Had they, had they read things in the Old Testament that would, man, this looks terrible, but I do know what's coming next. People who were stretching to once see this spectacle, his loyal followers now begin to wail and publicly mourn this circumstance. This is the narrative of Good Friday where Jesus' last breath is let out. But in the statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I want to I hover over this and, and ask you to observe three particular things. I, I just want to look at this particular verse, verse 46, and, and keep looking at it. And, and I think by just meditatively observing what is being shown here to us by the inspiration of the Spirit, and it has us both carry on our day in somberness, knowing what the the death of our Savior truly meant physically, but also the hope that it gives us. First, I want to invite you to consider or observe these words as our Savior's final words before his death. Consider the actual words that Jesus said. That Almost if you were to put it in brackets, what specifically did Jesus say? What were his final words? Consider these words as our Savior's final words. Notice that as he was passing away, he does it with a tone or with a shape or with an impression of the very word of God. Now, Christ to us is the, is the grand original thinker. You know, we, we remind ourselves that it was through him that all things were made. Jesus was the creator. The son of God was very present at the creation of all things. He knew us in our mother's womb. And so words you could imagine could come easy to him. There could be lots of things that he could say if someone were to ask you, what do you want your final words to be before your passing? And what were his but the very words from the word of God? He never lacked fitting language for any situation. It's written elsewhere that no man ever spoke like this man. He always knew what to say, whether he was being cornered or whether people were coming after him or whether people were serving him or even when he was teaching people in, in different forms. He always knew what to say. But you, you probably have noticed in reading the collection of the Gospels, 
So maybe you might have a Bible that is a red-letter Bible, where all the, the words of Jesus are printed in red. You might have noticed that, that a lot of these words that Jesus said, they actually came from older words in the Old Testament. In reading the collection of the Gospels, you might notice how he continually quoted Scripture. In fact, the great majority of his expressions are traced directly, if not specifically, to Old Testament passages. Even where they're not exact quotations, his, his words take the shape as if he came to truly fulfill what was spoken of in old. We see him often saying, you may have heard it before, but let me tell you now. So it's not surprising that when dying, it was natural for him to use a passage from a psalm for when he was expiring away. And the psalm that he chose was our Psalm 31, verse 5. But let me read to you from Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. It says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In Jesus' death, he was not driven beyond the power of contemplation. He was not unconsciously mumbling things that people could not understand. He did not die in mere weakness or meebleness. Our Lord, though sympathetic and very merciful, our Lord who comforts those who are afflicted was, at least in our text case, strong even while he was passing. It didn't say that he quietly murmured, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In our text, we don't imagine his head lowered and mumbling into the silence of death, but he, you could almost say he confidently utters his final words because the victory was on his horizon with mental clarity, with mental freshness. Out of all the possible words that he could say, he did not invent a new sentence, but he went to the book, to the word of the Lord, to the scriptures, and he took from the Holy Spirit's expression Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. How instructive is this for you and me today? That the incarnate word lives on the liveliness of the inspired word. The incarnate word lives on the liveliness of the inspired word. The the word, you could say, was a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. Friend, in your dark days, may this instruct you with saving your soul in mind, with with your name being in his heart. He, Christ, lived on the very word of God. So should you and I. And do you and I. In the highs and lows of all that life brings is our nourishment from God's truth and his word. You think about who Jesus is in reality. He is wisdom. He is truth. He is glory. He is all-knowing things, honestly, that have 
that have never been said about of me. I doubt they've been said about of you. But for him, they are his attributes. In his perfection, he aimed to place himself in the will of the Father, and his purpose was for the glory that we are amazingly swept up in by his own work. Until his dying breath, his lungs were filled with the splendor of the Scriptures. With his dying breath, his lungs were filled with the splendor of the Scriptures. So observe, as Jesus' final breath was exiting his body, he was filled with the very Word of God. Second, notice that our Lord, in the moment of his death, recognized a personal God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God is to some men an unknown God. You know, an agnostic may be honest in saying that there could be a God out there, but, it, but he or it is just not personally theirs. So they, they don't really have to follow those laws. They don't have to consider those things. It's just part of the creation order that they make for themselves. Others may say that, oh, that all things are God. You know, a pantheistic type person where you go out on a nature walk and, and that could be your God or that's a God or that's also a God. Some may say there is definitely a God, but he's far off. He's very far removed. And so the burden of obedience or the results of personal actions, they're they're far, far off too. But our Lord, Christ, didn't see the Father this way. Christ Jesus didn't follow and obey an impersonal, pantheistic, dream far-off God, but rather the one to whom he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His language shows you and me that he, that he realized that the very loving, powerful personality of God. It's truly a, a bringing on of comfort to us that, that our God is not far off and we can take refuge in this because for the Son, he wasn't far off either. Charles Spurgeon says that that men do not commit their souls into keeping of shadowy nothings. We don't trust in shadowy nothings. They, They do not in death smile as they resign themselves to the infinite unknown. Whatever happens will happen, and I'm happy with that. The cloudy father of everything who may himself be nothing or everything. No, no, Spurgeon says, we only trust in what we know. And for Christ, he knew the Father. He knew him to be the real, living, true God. A God whom he could entrust. Think about it. Not just a God who he could acknowledge, but a God to whom he could entrust his spirit. Knowing that the Lord would accept. Now, I should clarify that God the Father doesn't have material features like he might have given to you and me. Like when we use the words that he offered himself into the hands of the Father. It's not like an actual person like you and I might imagine for himself because no one has seen the Father who has powers of action. But our Father is still a very God of action a very God of comfort, a very God who aims to deal with men and women as he pleases and who is willing to take possession of their souls and not only to take possession of their souls, but to protect, 
their very souls forever and ever. Jesus speaks like one who believes that fully. And for us today, I pray that in life and death, we may deal with and depend on God in the very same way. It's been said that no matter matter how long man would live, he can quickly become good at adding things to the scriptures, or he can become very good at making God into his own image, or making rules of life into his own rules of life, fictional tales of God and his own ways. But in the matters of life and death, we need to deal with the very facts before us. What is true is true no matter who decides it, because it's actually the Lord that gives it in truth. Not only can you rely on Him, but you can trust in Him. And not only can you trust in Him, but you can entrust yourself to Him. In the same way that Jesus cried out that He entrusts His Spirit to the Lord, all of us, every single one of us, we are all called to entrust our lives Not just this part or that part or another part that we're hiding, but all of our lives were to entrust to the Lord. And it's in Christ's death. It's in his position on the cross that commands this trust. If we are to follow Jesus like Jesus calls us to follow him, we should entrust ourselves to the Father like Jesus entrusted his spirit. If God is a mere dream or a mere breath of emotional fresh air, then that's all he'll ever be to us, except that's not really who he actually is. But if God is a personal God, then he's something all the more to consider deeply on this Good Friday. Jesus committed his spirit not just abstractly or poetically, or even mere hopefully, but into the hands of God the Father, he entrusted himself. And I pray you do the same. Third and lastly, observe how Jesus Christ here brings out the very fatherhood of God. Observe how Jesus brings out the fatherhood of God, not just the the personal care of God, but now the fatherhood of God. The psalm from which Jesus quoted did not say Father. David didn't include that in his psalm, though his spirit would often do in other psalms. But Jesus has the right to direct the words of Scripture toward the right person and toward the proper pursuit. He's done this before when he said, you've heard it been said before, or you've heard it said over here, and And he might start, but he doesn't correct what people have heard, but rather he corrects the direction of the observer's hearts. He does this often where he would come in, almost like entering a room and said, you might have read this and this and this and all these things. They actually talk about me. It's amazing how in this subtle but overwhelmingly powerful way, when we we start to read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus himself, it it totally changed the game for us, doesn't it? We saw this as a church going through the book of Daniel. You might have heard of Daniel and the lion's den before, but, but have you heard of Daniel and the lion's den through the lens of Christ himself? Or in Daniel chapter two, where the 
tall statue stands with gold and silver and bronze and on and on. And, and it's reckoned with by something from space. And to a natural observer, you might go, oh, if those are representing kingdoms, then what this is foretelling is that not all kingdoms will last forever. But reading this through the very lens of Jesus himself, who is that rock that is coming from the heavens and will smash the powers of the earth and then will grow with his fullness? to the kingdom that is known throughout all and by all. Seeing the scripture through the lenses of Jesus totally changes the map, doesn't it? It totally changes the way that we actually read the scriptures all together. So when Jesus takes Psalm 31, verse 5, and when he adds on Father, doesn't it change the way we see our true God? Consider what Jesus did not say. He did not say, O oh God, into your hand I commit my spirit. But he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just the subtle sweetness that this expression now engulfs us in. It's a game changer, isn't it? Oh, we see the agony of Jesus on the cross. We, we recognize that it was our sins that put him there. We, we recognize that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, but he did for us what should have been done for us. But what he cries out on the cross is Father. Doesn't that change the way we see the God of the universe? Doesn't it inspire the way we pray to the God of the universe? I read in a book... Um, uh, about 15 years ago, so it was either in the fall of 2004 or the spring of 2005, my senior year of high school, I read in one book where it, it had this sociological understanding where every child has this internal longing to have a security given to them or a secureness given to them by a father in their life. And we all long for it, maybe at different stages. And I remember that tug it really broke me in a lot of ways because I recognize that I've always had a father in my life who was great and helpful, and he's always a security blanket. If there's ever something that goes wrong, like a leak in a house, who do I call my dad? But no dad is perfect. Certainly not every family has a father figure in it. We think of those who grew up without ever knowing a dad, or, or maybe there was a break in the relationship with the father. Maybe there were awful sinful times like abuse or neglect or just a faint memory of someone being present. No family is perfect with a dad in it here on earth, but there is an obvious and clear position of comfort and care that a father plays in every person's life. Not just men, not just little girls, but a dad, a father being there, guiding them, comforting them. And so it should, in many ways, cause our hearts to well up, to be overwhelmingly comforted when we hear our Lord cry out from the cross, and He confidently does so by saying, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. The Holy Child, the true Son, the longed-for Messiah, knew that He is specially in in a peculiar sense, the Son of the Most High. But he gets to call him Father. And therefore he says, my Father, 
And in dying, his expiring heart was lifted up and comforted with the thought that God would accept his spirit. And, and you know, it was because that God was his father that they put him to death, wasn't it? It was that he claimed that God was his father, that they cried out, crucify him. Yet he still stood, even in his dying hour, and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We must keep in mind that what our Lord accomplished on the cross was an eternal transaction that involves Him and the Father. He didn't do this by dying a martyr's death who failed at a lost cause, nor was He only an example for people to follow. If you just live like Him, then maybe you could have the blessings that He had. Isaiah 53 makes clear that Jesus did not die for his own sins because he had none. He died for our sins. He made his soul an offering for sin. And so with that understanding, what a blessing it is for us also in life and in death to truly know that by the access that we are given through the Son of God, that the symbolic gesture and the overwhelming understanding that the, that the curtain was torn in two and that darkness came over the land as a sign of judgment was actually a showcase of salvation where the Heavenly Father, by Jesus' death, is our Father too. Friend, recognize the depth in just this simple expression Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, how sweet in life and death to feel in our soul the spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father, and we know that it's the Son's Father. The one who upholds everything is ours too. In conclusion, in particular, Jesus' words on the cross are, uh, man, so meaningful. They're like a, a, they're like a diamond that you could hold up and you could just keep turning and turning and turning and you would be overwhelmed at the perfection that you see in here. You see the glimmer of glory on display, but they're not just words of comfort. His death is our only hope in salvation. Without Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, no person could stand in good, righteous favor before God because God will, in all of His holiness, have nothing to do with sin. Even the mere glimpse of sin, He won't have anything to do with it. But because of all mankind's sin, including my sin and even sinful inclinations, it is not possible for a holy God to overlook this, but with Christ's death on the cross. We are seen as his brothers and sisters. His very father is our father too. Because God is gracious and merciful toward his people, he made a legal, logical, and heroic way for man's sin to be, to be atoned for. Being God himself and also sinless, Jesus alone could stand up to the wrath that was brought to him through the sins of the world and the suffering separation of his death but because the wrath of God was so satisfied and being poured out on the Son, God allows all those who trust in His Son 
to be adopted as his own children and experience his righteous love and everlasting relationship. Friend, on this Good Friday, there are emotions all over the map. The wretchedness of our sin. Contemplate that. The love of the Father. Contemplate that. The pursuit of the Son, even to the cross. Be enamored by that. But the very words of our Savior, be captured by that. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, allowing us to rest forever. Let's pray. Father, our heavenly Father, we pray to you now and ask that you would guide us and teach us as we continue in worship. As we think about this wonderful weekend, recognizing that it was brought to us by death, but through Jesus' resurrection, it brings us great hope. We pray that you would cause us to trust you like never before, to cling to you like never before, and to hope in you like never before. Our Lord, until your Son comes for us again, may we sing of your great glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.